We are reading from Mark 11, 12-33. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven? or of human origin. Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask then, why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Thank you, Cora, for reading the word for us this morning. Welcome, everybody. It's great to be here. I wasn't here last week, so it's great to see uh, people that I missed last week. If there's anybody new here this morning, I hope to meet you uh, at, at the end of the service. Uh, my name is Rob. I'm one of the members here at High Wycombe Church, and I'm a guest preacher for today. So while, uh, while uh, Jared has a break, so enjoy your break. Jared. And uh, I'll pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, 
we come before your word uh, that you have written for us, that uh, we might know you. And I pray that, uh, that you speak to us this morning and that we are able to hear what you have to say to us and that, we're, uh, that you give us hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if there's something significant coming, it's good to tell people about what's ahead. Uh, one day I was a passenger in the car with my brother driving and there was a, um, the speed cameras on the other side of the road. So my brother flicked his lights so that the oncoming cars would know that there's the speed camera coming ahead. And lo and behold, what's up ahead on our side of the road? But, <laughs> but some police with speed cameras. So they pulled him over and he uh, received a fine for flashing his lights. So... Uh, so there are consequences for warning others, but uh, there, there's just an example in my family of someone uh, telling people about what's ahead, whether it's good to flash your lights or not, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But now, in today's passage, Jesus knew what was coming. He was in his last week before he was crucified. And I encourage you to have, your, have the Bible open in front of you. So Mark 11, chapter, um, verse 12. So open that up if you haven't got it, if you've got a Bible with you. Um, otherwise, I assume it'll, <laughs> the passages will come up on the screen as we go. So in today's passage, Jesus knew what was coming. He was in his last week before he was to be crucified. He came into Jerusalem to much fanfare on a Sunday, which we looked into several weeks ago. And he would be crucified five days later on the Friday. Today, we're going to look at the very next events that happened after his entry into Jerusalem, the events of Monday and the start of Tuesday. This is a week in which he would interact with the Jewish hierarchy as they sought for a way to put him to death. And it's also the final week that Jesus had to prepare his disciples for what was to come, for the new role that he knew that they were about to enter into. So I'll do a quick overview of what happened on these days. First of all, Jesus performs two destructive acts. Our Lord Jesus, he really is phenomenal. He's, he's always doing things in a way that demands attention. Then the two acts are the cursing of the fig tree and the dramatic teaching in the temple. And through these two acts, he communicates a single prophetic message, a single prophetic truth that the time for the Jerusalem temple being the place for worshipping God was coming to an end. Let's call this the fig tree temple prophecy. Now, secondly, we see what to do with this prophecy through Jesus' interactions with, first of all, his disciples and then with the Jewish elite. For his disciples, the message is, have faith in God. We see that written there in verse 22. And this is the primary message of today's passage, have faith in God. And so my title for today's sermon is, have faith in God. For the faithless, it's the Jewish elite, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Uh, the message of Jesus' interaction with them can be summed up in the phrase, don't test the Lord. So today's message is, don't test the Lord, have faith in God. 
Now, returning to the fig tree temple prophecy in verses 12 to 21. So I'll start reading from verse 12. On the following day, I'm reading from the ESV, on the following day after his arrival into Jerusalem, when Jesus and his disciples came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What a random thing for Jesus to do. <laughs> a grown man. Hello, plant. <laughs> Talking to a tree. And, and what's more, the tree listened to him. As we find out the very next morning, if we skip down to verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. So in the space of 24 hours, uh, this tree turned from being healthy to being totally lifeless. Now, if a tree is struggling, even with my botanical abilities, <laughs> it might be several weeks for the leaves and the branches to dry out before the whole tree turns up its toes. So for it to happen so quickly... We can see the demise of this tree was a direct result of Jesus' words spoken over it. What an unusual thing for Jesus to have done. He was always one to heal, to restore, to feed. In fact, on more than one occasion, he had brought a dead person back to life. But here he was bringing death to the tree. In fact, these two acts, the fig tree and the incident in the temple, they're the only ones of a destructive nature done by Jesus throughout his whole three-year ministry. So what was Jesus doing here? Well, he was providing an object lesson, like an acted-out parable, uh, like, like the Old Testament prophets, uh, like some of them had done before him. Jesus had previously spoken parables and spoken them involving plants, plants which were growing like the grain harvest and like the mustard seed, both in chapter 4. And these communicated truths about the kingdom of God. Here, the demise of a plant forewarned that the time had come for an end to something that had the appearance of fruitfulness but was failing to deliver fruit for the kingdom. So once again, the demise of the fig tree forewarned that the time had come for an end to something that had the appearance of fruitfulness, but was failing to deliver fruit for the kingdom. Well, right in the middle of these two sets of verses, uh, where he curses the fig tree and then Peter recognises it's withered, uh, right in the middle, we find the thing which is not bearing fruit. It's the temple. From verse 15, we read, They came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
Now, Jesus had not come to reform the temple. It, it seems he was not entering the central part of the temple where sacrifices were carrying out. He only began to, to overturn and so forth. Uh, so he, he wasn't completely clearing things out. He was in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. So in a space the size of two football fields, probably more, he was just a single individual. So if you imagine just one, one man in, in that space, he was performing what is more likely a small-scale drama to demonstrate what he was teaching when he said in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So he was telling the vast crowd who were in the temple that things were not how they ought to be. You see, when the high priest Caiaphas had opened up the temple precinct to have merchants in there, uh, he'd only done that a year, maybe two, maybe three years before, uh, the temple was no longer a house of prayer reserved for worshippers. In fact, the merchants were set up to provide revenue and to do so unlawfully uh, for the temple hierarchy. And in this respect, the temple had become a den of robbers. Verse 18 mentions, And the chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus said, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, what Jesus had said would have sounded far more threatening for the uh, Jewish leaders than it sounds for us today. They would have known that Jesus was quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah 56 and from Jeremiah 7. And in Jeremiah 7, the temple is referred to as a den of robbers. And it's referred to a den of robbers in the context of the people of Je um, Judah carrying out abominations, while at the same time being confident that all would go well with them, because simply because that they had the temple. And so the Lord had decided that this first temple would be destroyed. So Jesus' choice of this phrase from Jeremiah 7 reinforces the message from the cursed fig tree that the time for this second temple is coming to an end. Now there's one more fascinating aspect about this uh, fig tree temple prophecy. And um, just as the fig tree dies, there is a death involved in the demise of the Jerusalem temple. However, it's ironic that it's not any of the current temple personnel who die. Rather, it's Jesus himself who dies as the once for all time sacrifice, which is accepted by God so that those who belong to Jesus no longer need to bring an animal sacrifice to the temple every year an annual sacrifice which didn't actually cleanse the worshipper. It merely pointed to Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice. The Jerusalem temple, it was never designed to be the ultimate place of peace between God and man. It was always merely a copy and a shadow of the true temple, which is Jesus himself. And hence, we come here this morning and we worship God in the presence of Jesus. We're able to come to God through Jesus because he is our temple. With Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple was obsolete. 
although the physical building would remain there for another four decades or so. So that's the fig tree temple prophecy. And now we'll go on to see what to do with this prophecy. What was its message for the disciples and for us? How did Jesus respond? And, and then we'll look at how did Jesus respond to the Jewish elite after handing them this prophetic lesson? Well, Jesus never explains the meaning of his two destructive acts to the disciples. Just like a spoken parable, they are to be interpreted by those who have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, while those outside may see but not perceive. So Jesus leaves the disciples to discern the message for themselves. And then in verse 22, he begins to tell them the significance of the end of the age of the Jerusalem temple. He tells them, have faith in God. And what was Jesus saying when he said, have faith in God? You know, if you stop to think about it, there's uh, various people will uh, have different ideas as, as to what it means to have faith in God. For instance, when I was a teenager, I had faith in God. A God who would weigh up my good and my bad and judge whether I was good enough to be granted entry to heaven. I even believed in Jesus as the example of the one who does good works and my role was to follow his example so that I did good works which I hoped would outweigh my bad works. I had faith in God but not God who had revealed himself not God as he, had as he had revealed himself. He was the God of my own understanding, not the true God. Another view of faith is limited to an orthodox belief in a creed. So all you need to have faith in God is a belief in the right things about God. This assumes that God is just words on a page rather than the living word, a living being with whom we have a wonderful relationship. So what does Jesus mean by have faith in God? The next few verses tell us what having faith in God will mean for the disciples. Verse 23, let's have a look. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So there you have it. If you want a Ferrari, just ask and believe and it's yours. No. Other scriptures make it clear that that's not what Jesus is saying here. Some commentators, what is Jesus saying? Some commentators are of the opinion that Jesus is saying that man can't do the impossible, but God can. So even if you ask for something humanly impossible, like moving a mountain, God can deliver. And, and it may be that that's uh, what Jesus means. However, bear in mind that Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. And ahead of him is the mount on which sits the temple, and to the side is the Mount of Olives. Now, we don't know for sure which mountain he was referring to when he said uh, to look at the mountain, but I'd lean towards the commentators who say that Jesus is pointing to the Temple Mount. 
has just indicated to the disciples that the temple is not bearing fruit and by God's plan it's to be decommissioned. So planning ahead to when he will be taken up to heaven, he doesn't want his disciples to serve their newly risen Lord by trying to reform temple worship. He's promoting within them the mindset that the temple will undergo judgment. Figuratively, figuratively speaking, it will be thrown into the sea, which is a common symbol of uh, judgment in our scriptures. They are to have the mindset of not asking God to do what he has done before. They are to have the expectation that God has finished with worship in the temple, and yet God had not finished with them, his disciples. If they recognise what God is doing, throwing the mountain into the sea, and participate with what God is doing, God will give what they ask. Jesus is urging them to have faith. Because it's up to this point, they haven't really started to operate in faith. If we look back through Mark, in chapter 4, the disciples are panicking because uh, until Jesus calms a storm and Jesus rebukes them for their panic. Have you still no faith? In chapter 9, after the disciples were unable to cast out a spirit from a boy, Jesus says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Jesus told them on three separate occasions, in plain English, it was Aramaic actually, but <laughs> we wouldn't be able to understand it, <laughs> so, that he, the Son of Man, was to be killed, and on day three he would rise again. And they didn't know what he was talking about. Even after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene came to them and told them that Jesus was alive. And they still did not believe. So when Jesus eventually met with them, he rebuked them for their unbelief. But uh, it's marvellous to think that even after that, Jesus was forgiving towards, a, towards them and accepted all the 11 that were left. The time is nigh upon them, the disciples, to start having faith. And the faith needs to be in God. And they need to start believing what God is telling them and believe in God's power to deliver on what he's telling them. What's the message for us today? The disciples didn't believe when Jesus forewarned them about his death and resurrection. Let us believe what God is saying about himself. He's written a whole book about it, after all. Jesus, uh, so secondly... Jesus was preparing the disciples for a life of service to him in fellowship with him, walking with him. Let us consider whether we are allowing pockets of faithlessness to uh, get in the way of us listening to him and walking with him and delighting in him. So do we need to make adjustments to trust in Jesus at all times? to put our priorities in order. Thirdly, Jesus knew that his disciples would falter when, they, when he was put to death. Consider 
whether we're allowing what is wrong in the world, the things that God has not dealt with as yet, consider whether we're allowing these things to shake our confidence in God. Do we need to hand these things over to God, ask him if there's anything that we should do about them, and if not, trust him to deal with them in his time? Fourthly, Jesus was calling on his disciples to have faith in his agenda. He was looking to avoid them from doing works which would seem fruitful but would not bear fruit, such as reforming temple worship. So for us, let's us consider whether we're diminishing Christ's once-for-all-time sacrifice and figuratively speaking, adding our own sacrifice to it, doing bits to earn the gap that, <laughs> that uh, Christ's work hasn't been enough to do. Do we need to extend our faith so that it's fully in God? And fifthly, Jesus was abundantly generous to his disciples with their slowness to have faith in him. It's amazing, the generosity. Consider whether we're being hard on ourselves if we find ourselves slow to pick up on spiritual matters. God is gracious to us. Let him prompt us as to what we need to take on board rather than beat ourselves up about it. Let us delight in the grace of our Lord. Now there's one more thing as we go on to, uh, in Jesus' message to the disciples. So as well as commanding them to have faith in what God is doing through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through the replacement of temple worship with worship through Jesus, he commands them to let God be God. He says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. See, Jesus knew that his disciples would suffer persecutions as they served him, the risen Lord. And the natural response would be to fight back, to seek revenge. But... Revenge is mine, says the Lord. It's his role as the judge. The disciples would need to leave it to God to bring justice when they were wronged. And in turn, the disciples would be forgiven for their own wrongs. To take justice into one's own hand is to lack faith in God. So once again, this is a message for us today. Is there any situation in which we have not yet given up the right of retribution to the Lord? So can we pray for those who have wronged us without being churned up about it? So if not, let's hand those things over to the Lord. So there's the first outworking of the fig tree temple prophecy, the message to the disciples to have faith in God. Now, the second outworking of the Fig Tree Temple incident is an implied message to the faithless. Don't test the Lord. We read in verse 27, And Jesus and the disciples came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, 
the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. We've already met the chief priests and the scribes in verse 18 when they heard Jesus rebuke them with the Old Testament quotes which amounted to judgment being upon them. Jesus doesn't tell them to have faith in God. In contrast to the disciples, they're in contrast to the disciples who have so far proved themselves to be underdeveloped in their faith. But the temple leaders had proved themselves to be playing for the opposite side altogether. They are firmly entrenched as being faithless. Despite them hearing and witnessing Jesus' exploits that shows himself to be their Messiah that they've been looking for, they continue to disregard their own scriptures about him. Even when he's on the cross, they call out as if one more sign is all that's needed to convince them. They, they say when he's on the cross, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. It says that in chapter 15. They're never going to believe. So now these chief priests and, and uh, scribes, they add the civic leaders to their number, the elders, to put Jesus to the test. They're looking to trip Jesus up and so provide a way to destroy him. Verse 28 says, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them, to do this teaching in the temple and the turning the tables and so forth? Well, it's interesting what Jesus doesn't tell them. He could have told them, in plain Aramaic, things which are true, like, The temple is my house because I am God who has come to earth in the flesh. He could have said something like that, like things that are true, to uh, challenge them. But he didn't. He merely avoids their test. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what's the message for us in this section today? Well, if you are here as someone who does not yet trust in God, if you say something to yourself like, oh, God, I would turn myself over to you if you zapped me like you did to, to Paul, to Saul, with a blinding light and a booming voice, I am Jesus. Until then, I'll use my own nous to make sense of the world for myself. Thanks very much. So if that's you, God has already given you all the evidence that you need that his kingdom is real. He's come to earth. He's fulfilled prophecies. He's defeated death. He's left word of himself for us to know what he's done and why. He's the only one in history to have done all these things and more. So his message to you is, not in a booming voice, don't put me to the test. Consider what I've already made clear to you. He's unlikely to give you more. Just like 
Jesus didn't give more to the Jewish elite in today's passage, he generally doesn't respond to those who put him to the test. But if you decide today, yes, Jesus has showed me enough. If you decide from this day forward, I am his, then I promise you, I promise you that there will be joy welling up in your being. And if this is you, share that joy with someone else here after the service. So for all of us, me included, God says to us today, have faith in God. What a wonderful God we have to have faith in. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. You're trustworthy to keep your word. You're powerful to fulfil your word. You're gracious to forgive our slowness in accepting all of your word. Keep prompting us to trust in you in all things, to put you first in all things, to forgive others in the same way that you have forgiven us. That we be your people, living lives which demonstrate faith in you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.